You're listening to Thought and Leaders. Hello, hello, and welcome again to another Thought and Leaders. In this episode, it's a very special guest, Jane Frost, CBE, who is the Chief Executive Officer of MRS and an amazing background, which we, I'm sure we will delve into as well. So, hello, Jane. Hi, nice to be speaking with you. Tell us a little bit about yourself in terms of being a CEO at uh, MRS. Well, I'm one of these poacher turned gamekeeper, actually, because I spent all my life as either uh, a chief marketing officer or a strategy wonk or something like that. But all my career, I have used research and insight to change lives, to change policies, to change strategy. So when the opportunity came up to represent the uh, research and insight sector, I jumped at it. It's a marvellous place to be. Do you think that um, research has, has, has changed significantly? We're, we're going to talk about COVID in just a second. But leading up to COVID, do you think that it, it has changed significantly up to, gosh, I forgot when it was, Jane. I think it was April. I, I don't know about time anymore, you know. Okay, go on. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, it was change. It was almost like um, a uh, a physicist's view of time, it was changing in different streams. I think clients were changing faster than agencies necessarily were. And there was a lot going on in other areas, which uh, a client would call research and insight, but maybe the traditional supply chain wouldn't. What clients want is an end result. And they're not particular really how they get it. They don't have a view that it must be done in a certain way. And I think mm-hmm. uh, the supply chain in terms of agencies who have been here a long time, have been rather slower to catch up. As a marketer in Lever Brothers in Kingston-on-Thames, I grew up yeah. with a rigid belief that research must underpin everything I did. And I remember that I, even the weirdest changes to formulation had to be uh, nomadic uh, sequential testing, which is almost impossible to pass. So everyone was really, really fixated on what the research said. Uh, these days, I think that is much less the truth. Really? But, do, but don't you think, Jane, that everyone is so obsessive by data? It's like, what does the data tell us? And online, everything is about data, data, and get some more data with, with some chips on the side, I suppose. But let's have, <laughs> let's have, let's have some more insights in here. So surely, this is, the, this is the greatest time ever, surely, for market researchers. I often re- look at data, big data phenomena and actually regard it as a diplodocus, you know, huge body, tiny brain. So we do have a huge job to do to stop this being big data and make it smart data, which is usable, which actually tells you something, which actually is an insight. You know, uh, I saw some government research some years ago, which said, oh, this is amazing. People with enough income and who don't have a health problem are happier than those that don't. Now, that's what the data told them, but that's not an insight as far as I'm concerned. Exactly. I want it all. I want it all. I want it all. And I want it now. It seems to be, especially in today's world, people are very trigger data happy. It's very superficial. Right now, this is what people are saying. So therefore, we're going to change everything to, to meet those needs right now. 
Now, as far as I'm concerned, the first thing we need to know is, is this a blip or does it follow a trend? We did a training hour with Impress, which is one of the British press regulators, trying to convince people that they needed to understand what polls did and what the statistics told them uh, before they started writing about it in the papers. The Evening Standard reported that uh, Keir Starmer had leapt ahead of uh, Boris Johnson in approval ratings. And in fact, he had done no such thing. He was one point ahead. And if you if you actually bother to look at the uh, sample size, you'll realise that means nothing at all. Those sort of reporting are the sort of things that brings our industry into disrepute. Particularly with events that have been going on recently, politically and culturally and socially, you get a lot of people who would start congregating towards social bubbles. And it's interesting that you were speaking to these uh, newspaper guys because they do kind of leap on, well, what is the truth today? And maybe tomorrow it's a different truth. But hey, if it sells newspapers or in this case, online stuff, then that's what we go with. You can talk yourself, you can print yourself into a depression. Whenever I did a major national survey, I wanted to make sure I had booths to listen to the ethnicities who were less well represented because they can be completely ignored if you just do a standard sample and they're not uh, a, a very large proportion of the, of the population. And I think there's not enough rigour around actually understanding that. I think the Ipsos uh, were reporting today that there is a huge improvement in people's tolerance and understanding of other community groups. Mm. And that's been going on for 10 years, which obviously doesn't quite fit the pictures that we've seen of fights taking out around Winston Churchill statue. Your insights might be saying one thing, but people will gravitate towards what they're literally seeing in front of them. And then that becomes the new truth. I once put a minister behind a screen to watch a one-to-one in-depth market research piece on domestic violence. And it's the first time they tried to use market research rather than uh, a much longer term academic study to do this. The minister was only there, meant to be there for 20 minutes. He actually was there for several hours. He came out near in tears and he said, I now really understand what you're talking about because he'd listened to the words of the woman who, who, who was uh, involved. And I do think that this is one place that qualitative research can be incredibly powerful. Do you think that the new mantra in terms of the new normal will be, let's put qualitative before quantitative? Both are growing in tandem. But I would be very sad to see this country's sort of leading position on qualitative go, because I do think it's one of the reasons that some of our brands are so strong. When I was working at Revenue and Customs and doing a massive, massive piece of customer segmentation to try and work out how we manage beha- uh, public behaviour. We started with qual, then we went to quant, then we came back to qual, then we went to quant, because the issue is, what is the question you are asking? If you get a word wrong in the question you're asking, you can, could alter the whole um, meaning of the data that you get back. Because what I may think a word means is not necessarily what a consumer thinks a word means. We have people in this country who thinks... Um, your tax return means you're getting tax back. So if you've got that simpler misunderstanding going out there in the public, you just sort of simply use your own terminology and your own language to frame your data uh, analysis or your quantitative survey, what you'll get back is very, very misleading data. 
Now, do you think that in terms of including minority groups in surveys, do you think there's a bit of a wake-up call now? I don't think people intend to miss people out. They just look around the room and look vaguely surprised. I mean, the number of times I've looked around a boardroom and said, oh, my goodness, I'm the only woman here. I thought that had mm. all changed. Uh, and, and my chair had not noticed because that's the way things had always been. And I think it's slim, similar in uh, briefs you get from clients. If they don't know to ask a question, they won't ask it. And it may be something we ought to be doing in terms of sustainability as well, not letting clients issue a brief that doesn't have a sustainability point in it. It's all about asking questions and listening and then not jumping and then seeing both the quant and the qual uh, point of view and, 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 and vice versa as well. Do you think that in terms of schools and education that children are taught to look at life in a kind of a different way from a market research point of view so that as they grow older, they're able to appreciate the bigger picture? The curriculum only allows you one interpretation, say, of history. And mm. even if you discount bias, uh, I remember going to university to study history and realizing all the history I'd learned as a kid was wrong. You know, because they have to jam it into a set amount of time, they teach you a certain way about the French Revolution. And actually, when you do the study, you realize that the sans-culottes were not the major story in the French Revolution at all. It was the bourgeoisie. I remember seeing some statistics, I think, on the Occupy movement, which showed how upper middle class most of the Occupy movement uh, activists were. Uh, but if you... Th- just look at the picture, back to your point, if you just look at the picture, you might assume that this was some deep grassroots um, movement for change, which it clearly wasn't. Mm. You talk about a concept called intelligence capital. My belief at the moment is that we are letting uh, the sector down. We're letting the sector down because we let most relationships be transactional. So somebody gives you a brief, you answer the brief. The brief actually may disappear completely um, because other things take over, but it's not part of a strategic vision that says we are going to develop uh, the insight and evidence of our customers and how we deal with them as the uh, an asset base, which is as important as our mm-hmm. financial capital. You can have all the money in the world, but if you've got it wrong with your consumer, you've got it, it's wasted. So my belief is that we should be building something called intelligence capital, which takes in not only the ad hoc work that uh, gets commissioned from time to time, but all the data that is coming about the consumer into into a business. Using that to learn, so you have to be a learning organisation, and you also have to have, I think, emotional intelligence. The one thing that is so important about understanding your customer is that he or she is not merely a rational individual. They're emotional individuals. They're clan individuals. And you need to be able to understand how your company is going to react to them and how they're going to be empowered to deal with them. Because Mm. we all know the old mantra that a complaint that gets handled is worth 20 times more in customer loyalty than a a good transaction. Part of that learning is very difficult for, for, for many companies and is very challenging for many companies. But if you've got great intelligence capital, you'll know that it's important. Lemon fresh, lemon sharp. There's nothing quite like my sunlight. Sunlight lemon liquid with real lemon freshness. And it works really hard too. 
Even on those messy casseroles, you always leave to last. A bit of a soak, and sunlight cuts right through. Gets things ever so clean. Makes everything sparkle. Sunlight makes a world of difference. Fresh, sharp, clean. Sunlight lemon liquid. It is so difficult, isn't it, Jane, to actually measure it uh, from a market research point of view? Because what people say is so transient. So what they're going to say to your researchers, yeah, your, your members, and what they actually really believe can be so different, can't it? I was once given, and, and, and forgive me for the anecdote, the dog of the brand at Lever Brothers, which was a washing up liquid, or Sunlight Lemon, which actually looked as if it should beat fairy, but actually was a complete disaster to run. Nobody wanted it. Uh, Why not, uh, Jane? Tell we, we do like a bit of a backstory. Go on, then. <laughs> Well, it was because it was a rationally created brand. The, the research had said, quite rightly, women didn't want to be relegated to the kitchen. They didn't want to be relegated to the uh, kitchen sink. Uh, they were fed up of being patronised in the way that fairy appeared to be patronising them, you know, hands that do dishes and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and actually, it replaced a brand called Squeezy, which people preferred. Right, do you remember okay. Squeezy? It was the first I'm just thinking season. about it. Squeezy. People loved it. <laughs> But of course, the the uh, uh, the company abandoned it in favour of Sunlight Lemon. We couldn't keep that lasted brand and distribution no matter what happened. And in the end, I defaulted to the most brilliant researcher I've used for years and years and years, a guy called Roy Lagmaid. And he did some one-on-one and in-depths. And we came out with the realisation there were a number of reasons we were never going to overtake Fairy. One was that Fairy is one of those brands that is part of the household. So blokes buy it if their mother-in-law is coming around to prove that they know what they're doing. You know, women buy it for their mother-in-law to prove that they, that they know what they're doing. So there is an element about that about it. But the most fascinating bit was washing up is the one time when women aren't pestered by their kids or their husbands because they've all gone off because they don't want to get involved. So it's me time. Really? But then you you were on the you are who we're talking to. We're talking about over pressured women with too much to do at the end of the day. All right, I'll take that on the chin. Go on then. Yeah. It is a bit like trying to explain to the BBC when I was there why soaps are so important. You know, there's a tendency to think that that soaps are only for uh, less educated people because, you know, they're emotional. They're not. But actually, women like soaps because they come in at the end of the day. They don't want panorama. They don't want to engage brain because they've got to engage kids. They've got to engage husband. They still do the majority of the housework. But they're so, excuse my language, they're so bloody depressing, Jane. Watch EastEnders. <laughs> Uh, no, I would tend to agree with you on that. And don't get me to wherever the arches has gone with this. It's, ah, well, the arches is a, a separate issue. <laughs> I can't cope. I mean, uh, the arches used to be my I'm clearing up on a Sunday thing, and now I can't yeah. bear it. Is it right. just too depressing now? Too depressing. <laughs> okay, but going back to the sunlight, so you're saying that it, it's, it's, it's ladies' time. It, it's a time for them to, like... It's just me, the dishes, and my thoughts. It did come out with the fact that the only thing that was going to be fairy in the dishwash market was Purcell. Okay. So, uh, and, and I wasn't around when they took Purcell off the shelves eventually, but uh, the launch of Purcell liquid was the biggest um, 
sort of threat to fairy in a long time. I, I was in the Middle East doing some research. Would you believe it? I get the most fabulous jobs uh, nice. into engine oil. Now, engine oil to an Arab who is resident in somewhere like Saudi Arabia mm. uh, is so important because if your truck breaks down, you've had it. And therefore, the terminology they use of engine oil is emotional. Really? And if you translate your English uh, words into rational Arabic, you are using the wrong terms. You need to use the emotional terms. And we discovered that by actually going out and watching people use the product, talk about the product, and realize that this was actually core to part of their way of life because mm. their truck was core to their way of life. As a result of that, we produced completely different advertising than we would have done otherwise. With the BLM stuff, one of the things that uh, policymakers can be looking at in the future is really serious market research, not to give a a knee-jerk reaction to things, but to actually look at it in a much deeper, more profound way. Or is this such a deep uh, issue that no amount of market research is going to be able to say, and this is the definitive way forward? I think what is really important is that you need to listen hard and properly listen, because most people, when they say they're listening, don't listen, do they? There was a very important conference uh, that MRS ran many, many years ago, which had Tony Benn as one of the key speakers. And one of the things he said to to conference was, research matters because you give people a voice to power. And I think that is a really important thing to remember these days and why we should push back at clients or people who don't want to spend money listening to the under-listened-to communities mm. and they are mm. under listened to and but you need to listen with your mind open to your mm. point otherwise your own cognitive biases take over things are marketing people really going to be listening with their hearts open and their mind open they're so worried about keeping their jobs and stuff like that that they're going to opt for the cognitive bias solution which is going to confirm that the boss was actually right anyway well, you know, I think it's one of those things that if you're not breaking through in the market, if you're, if you're not making money, you have to start asking why, you know, and sometimes uh, you need to change once, that, once, once you can't, if you can't change the model, you need to change something else. So I do think that actually, if there is evidence behind it, most people will consider change. The, the finance director at Revenue and Customs was one of the, my, my closest allies in changing things in, in, in tax because we took him through what it cost him to make the assumptions that were being made. One of the things that I've always found useful through my life is a a rather rough and ready approach to Myers-Briggs, whereas I know what I am, a a learnt ENTP. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, because normally I'm much more sort of uh, FJ, I think, but I've learnt in business to be TP. Okay. And I know that ISs, we're not communicating very well. Mm. So I tend to think, say, right, that's the mountain and we're, we're up there and isn't it exciting? I have to learn if I'm talking to an IS that it's open the gate, turn right, go over the stream, mm. and then we'll get to the same mountain place, but they want to travel it a different way. And it's up to me to communicate. From a COVID point of view, how can you explain how you can use research when, when the client, in this case is a government, but when they are really right in the, in, in the middle of things? Uh, social listening. 
But doesn't that give the same issues that we were discussing before, that people are going to take a knee-jerk reaction to whoever shouts the loudest? Polling turns around in 24 hours, don't forget. So polling is very rapid. Um, you can reuse some of your existing work because just because a situation has changed doesn't mean that you're, you can't reuse and repurpose existing stuff. The demise of the COI in, in government means they don't have a central expertise uh, which has a, an archive of what went before because you know there's some very complex stuff that you can take learnings from. The, the, the fact that seatbelts were successfully introduced in this country was largely due to brilliant advertising based on completely brilliant insight. But coming out of this period, we certainly need to, to, to understand and challenge our assumptions because everyone's talking about the new normal. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's right, but I'm not convinced that the majority of people don't want the old, old normal back. The old normal is where they enjoyed their lives. They had certain they had certainties that they they relied on were important, like visiting, going out, visiting friends, going to a restaurant, going to the theatre when they not theatre, the cinema whenever they wanted to, uh, buying. You can go to theatre as well if you like. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm trusting the Lowry, so it's very very sad not to have that open at the moment. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't want anyone to say people are going to get a lot better and a lot more sustainably conscious because they've had this interruption in their lives. I think what they're going to say is, how do I get back to normal as soon as possible? But we need to make really? sure who's right, you know? I mean, I've, I've interviewed a lot of people, Jane, um, about what the new normal is going to be looking like from every industry you can think of. And, you know, everyone's saying about everyone's going to be kinder and that the air is going to be cleaner and we're all going to hug each other. Oh, oh I'm, a, I'm a cynical, well, I better not say it, a bored guy. Um, and so I'm thinking, yeah, really? <laughs> habits are formed. We've had three months to form new habits. So some habits True. may well stick. So the fact that I now know all the people in my road means that I'm going to say hello to them. So some things are cha uh, will have changed. The fact that I've discovered it's really great to have some time to talk to people I haven't talked to in years. That, that may well stick. But what will happen, of course, is when life gets completely chaotic again and I'm rushing from point A to point B, some of those will slip back into bad, bad habits very, very easily. And I'll have to reinforce my new habits to keep making stick. So I'll consciously have to make sure that I go on the, the, the streets WhatsApp and invite people around for um, a bit of an ease up when we're allowed to do it. Something else will get in the way. Yeah. And that will be back in old habits again, which is just rush, 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 rush. Working uh, from remote, do you think that that's going to be, you know, take a bigger role now rather than having face-to-face -face interviews like it used to be? I'm zoomed out, so I've got square eyes and everything else. Yeah, yeah. It's as good as having a, a board, a live board. I've chaired these things, and it's very difficult to draw in the less participative, participative people into a board call when you're trying desperately. You can't, you can't catch their eyes and say, I've seen you, I'll come to you, because mm. it's, it, it doesn't work that way. I, I, th I think the technology is wonderful. I'm really glad I don't have to go into so many meetings. And the one thing I'm really worried about is yeah. that uh, people aren't thinking about blended working in a way that is creating a good outcome, which is taking the best from working from home with the best from working together. And, and creating something that, that is actually streets ahead of where we used to be. 
blended working is where we need to be, but we need to be thinking about it in a constructive fashion, not just about how much money we can save if we keep everyone at home. One of the things that technology has enabled is much more DIY research. So, and I have nothing against the survey monkeys of this world. I just think they have to be used professionally and well. Because one particular piece of research, which the headlines everywhere were something like only 2% of men take paternity leave. This is dreadful, right. paternity leave policies aren't working. So that's 2% of all men not 2% of men who are entitled to take maternity. Oh, I see. I got so it. Fundamentally flawed, and to your point, leads to fundamentally poor policy if it's allowed to stand. And- Let's talk about a user research customer experience, Jane. These are all things that have tried to establish themselves as being totally different from market research or insight. And of course, they're not. And it was trending that these were going to be very separate empires. What I have noticed is more and more clients bringing them in, in together with their insight functions, because if you're going to have one customer view, you can't have five different interpretations of the customer running around your, your, your company. So they are coming together with customer insights, so they're not going to be in separate departments, or there's a right. trend for them to be less separate separately. But it's a bit like data analytics. Everyone t- keeps telling me data analytics is different from insight. And I say, no, it's not. For goodness sake, the sector has been doing data analytics since it was been well invented before the, uh, the Second World War. You know, mm-hmm. What it used to be really great at and is still really great at is mass interpretation of mass behavior. So it's not separate, but we've actually allowed this interpretation of data analytics as being cleverer than, than quantitative research, which is it's exactly the same thing. It's just the source of where they get the numbers from is different. So, Jane, now beyond uh, MRS, you've been involved over many years uh, with different charity sectors and stuff like that, haven't you? Apart from the MRBA, which, it, which actually gives funds out to researchers who need it, and you wouldn't believe how difficult life is for people who haven't got full employment they are um, workers they're on zero hour contracts they you know it's, it's really really very bad so the MRBA is absolutely wonderful but my three big charities that, I, that I'm totally devoted to fair trade fairness is how we should be dealing with everyone and all you need to do is go into your supermarket and buy a fair trade branded product the difference it makes is amazing uh, the other is the Lowry, which I've been involved since it was built on the keys in, in Salford. Uh, and th- this is such an example of how building an arts institution has reframed the economics of the area. And that now has the BBC on it, ITV on it. It's got Media City. But their work, outreach work, particularly for cared for children, has uh, been something that's brought tears to my eyes. And every time I look at it, I think, go on there, support them. Uh, is a wonderful thing in Greater Manchester and, and Salford Council, who have been so far-sighted in supporting us. During the COVID period, they've been putting up lots of free artwork things for people to do with their kids. So it's free, and I think that's a great way to do it. And the final thing, of course, is the Red Cross. And I'm very privileged to co-chair the Tiffany Circle of the Red Cross. I find its work absolutely amazing. 
They've taught yeah. me a lot because they've taught me about disaster response, which I've taken into my business. So uh, it's great when you can do something and give something and get something back that you're learning more from. So, uh, so true. So true. Particularly, by the way, with my pet uh, subject uh, charity, which is also the uh, Red Cross. Many, many years ago, uh, I did a, a major project with them, which was a charity thing. And actually, by giving to them, I actually received more in, in bigger ways of money, I can assure you. Uh, one last thing. I've got to get it in because I'm actually fascinated by this. Come on, Jane, what did you do to do with Perfect Day? Well, I was in charge of brands for the BBC and trying to convince people that the BBC was a good thing and worth the licence fee. Uh, and uh, we'd been doing some lovely little films. They were love- beautiful. And we just said, not good enough. We have to go big because the one thing the BBC is, is surprising and big. And the agency, which was Lagos Delaney, came back to us and said, right, we're going to do a song and have lots of other people sing it. Uh, and what you find when you do something like Perfect Day is that people do love the BBC. So all those people on that video cost us 50 quid. And then when I said, actually, this is so good, we ought to give it to children in need so they can raise royalty for children in need. I went around all those people and said, would they give up their royalties? And they said, absolutely, for children in need. And I think it made something like £2.7 million in the end. Uh, but it is phenomenal. I get people saying to me, I still play it because it reflects something. But I, I also get people who tell me, how dare you do something that's to do with drugs? And I said, well, yeah, but Ringer Ringer Roses is about uh, the plague and people still tell children to sing it. Only the BBC could get all those people together and make something that beautiful. And now ITV are going to hate me, aren't they? But <laughs> Yeah, can't win them all. <laughs> now... How can people get hold of you, Jane? Well, uh, there is an email, uh, ceo at mrs.org.uk, and it would be wonderful if everyone who needed any advice on COVID from research looked at our COVID hub. All that's free, uh, and the work that the team's put in to actually putting everything up there they possibly could, talking to the department for for, um, the BES, which is the department dealing with all of this, it is wonderful, and I really must shout out to the team for the, for the fact they've been working all the hours. We've all taken a pay cut, but they've, it's not stopped them delivering some super stuff. So once again, a, a thought leader who is absolutely, totally inspirational. And she reminds me of what I tell you every week, people out there, and that is, you know, Business is business and business is in our hands. And I think with the right questions, and as Jane said, with listening to the right answers, there's so much more we can do in this greater new normal. So until next time, look after yourself and uh, see you soon. Just a perfect day. Feed animals in the zoo. Then later, a movie too. And then Why not join us in a future show? It's a chance to make sure your story is heard. Or if you have an intriguing idea for Jonathan to explore, why not email reinvent at me.com? 
That's reinventatme.com. Problems all left alone. A weekenders on our own. It's such fun. Just a perfect day. You made me forget myself. I thought I was someone else. Someone good. Yeah.